exactly as you intended to today and that, God, you would just get all the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am excited today. I always, I always say that anytime I start preaching here, I've, I've kind of recognized that. Um, I think it's partially due to the fact that anytime I have to speak, I get super nervous. And so uh, I'm just going to mask it as, I'm excited. I'm going to flip that around. I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Uh, but I'm also excited. Maybe it could be that the Boston Celtics won game six last night with a .1 second buzzer beater to extend to game seven in the Eastern Conference Finals. And hopefully they win tomorrow night to make it to the NBA Finals. In Jesus' name, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Amen. Excited to get uh, into the word. Um, when I was a kid, I don't remember exactly when, but somewhere along the way, I learned a principle that had an impacting, a lasting impact in my life. It's a fairly simple uh, principle that it's the same idea, but many know, many know it by different things. Uh, some may know it as defend the little guy. How many of you have ever been told that or heard that? Defend the little guy or be a protector of people. How many of you have heard that one? Or how about if you see something, do something? How many of you have heard that? All right, I, I, I thought that would be the majority right there. It's this idea of being there for others when something like bullying, injustice, abuse, wrongdoing is done to them. It's almost instinctual for me to want to get in the middle of something and try and solve it with a peaceful resolution. When I see wrongdoing before me, it's difficult for me to not put on the hat of mediator and do what I can do to bring out a peaceful resolution. Ask my wife, like, if we are in public, it's hard for me to not get involved, and I have to use discernment on where I can and where I shouldn't. Um, and again, I don't remember who exactly taught me this, uh, you know, it, it could have been a conversation with one of my parents, maybe a family member, or a role model. Um, it could have been Uncle Ben from the Spider-Man universe uh, with his famous quote to Peter Parker at the start of his career of superheroism, with great power comes... Let's do that one again. With great power comes... Great responsibility. I love that everyone knows that. What I learned with that principle was that if I saw something and did nothing even though I was fully capable, it made me guilty of allowing it to happen. I know you can't change all situations, and I know that you shouldn't involve yourself in everything that you see before you, but this mindset has always helped me be a fighter for peace and a protector of peace. To see something that is wrong and feel the burden of responsibility to do something about it. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929. He was an American Baptist preacher and activist who is one of the most prominent leaders in the American Civil Rights Movement from 1955 until his assassination on April 4, 1968. King advanced civil rights for people of color in the United States through nonviolence and civil disobedience. Inspired by his Christian beliefs, he led targeted nonviolent resistance against forms of discrimination. King participated and led marches for the right to vote, desegregation, labor rights, and other civil rights. Many are familiar with the March on Washington that took place on August 28, 1963. I have a picture of what this exactly looked like. Dr. King famously addressed the multitudes gathered there in support <clears throat> for the civil rights leg uh, legislation proposed by President John F. Kennedy in June that year with what we know today as the I Have a Dream speech. 
In the speech, King called for civil and economic rights and an end to racism in the United States, delivered to over 250,000 civil rights supporters from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The speech is one of the most famous moments uh, in civil rights, uh, in the civil rights movement and among the most iconic speeches in American history. Here's what I didn't know about this story until I was an adult. Among King's inner circle were two people he spoke with virtually every day. His attorney, Clarence B. Jones, and New York businessman, Stanley Levinson. In early, that, uh, in early June of that year, when it was clear that the march would happen, Jones and Levinson met with King regularly and were tasked with drafting a framework for this speech alongside of King. Fast forward to the day of the march, with his inner circle off to the side, and Mahalia Jackson, a legend in gospel music and King's favorite singer, who was also a friend who would encourage him when he needed it, uh, she was there with his inner circle as well as King prepared to address the crowd. Here comes the moment. King steps up to the pulpit, and he paused for 10 seconds as the crowd cheered him on. During that pause, the trajectory of the speech and its place in history changed. Jones says he was about 15 yards behind King when he heard someone from the stage yell out to King, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream, Jones says. It was Mahalia Jackson, and King also heard it. His reaction to, uh, to it was to look in her direction, but then to take his prepared notes and slide it to the left of the stadium. This is Jones speaking when he said, I turned to somebody that I, was, that I was standing next to and I said, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. <laughs> King proceeded and it was in that moment that the dream became reality, beginning the speech with, I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face difficulties of today and tomorrow, I, I still have a dream. And the rest was history. It was a spontaneous moment. Nowhere in his notes were the words, I have a dream. Dr. King was a person who saw something that was wrong in this world and did something about it. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that wants to see this world transformed for Jesus. To see people of all generations, cultures, and backgrounds come to know Jesus and his love for them. A church that is missional when it comes to seeing the gospel advanced, but missional living and thinking go deeper than just what we do in terms of missions support. I'm gonna say that one one more time. Missional living and thinking go deeper than what we do in terms of missions support. If we want to see this world, if we wanna see New York State, let's shrink it down a little bit. If we wanna see Syracuse impacted by the gospel, Missional thinking and missional thinking must be adopted by all who call on the name of Jesus. Amen? Has Jesus been the focus of your daily life? Think about it, church. If we who know Christ, if we who know the truth of who he is as the Son of God, as the Savior who died on the cross, rose again, and ascended on high with the promise to one day return for his people, if we know truth, but do not share that truth. Can we say that we truly love our brothers? Can we truly say that we love our sisters who don't know? Can we truly say that we love this world? Has Jesus been a daily focus in your life? I don't ask to discourage anyone in their faith, 
but to bring all of us, including myself, to a place of accountability to ensure that we aren't getting so caught up in doing things for God that we aren't spending time with him. Again, that we aren't getting caught up doing things for Jesus that we don't spend time with him. Don't get caught up in the busy work of the Great Commission, that you don't spend time with the one whom died and allowed us to participate. Amen? It all begins with Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. If we want to see our area radically transformed for Jesus, then it begins with us. To hear about Jesus, to see Jesus, and be transformed by his spirit at work in our hearts. Before we came to Jesus, we were lost and we were blind to the realities of the world that we live in, but when Jesus is invited into your heart, when Jesus is invited into your life, everything changes. I had a teacher when I was at school that would always say, and I, I didn't understand what in the world he meant at first, but he would always say, the mo- at the moment of salvation, nothing changes, but everything changes. Nothing changes, but everything changes. And I had no idea what he meant at first. But if you think about it, if you're caught in difficult situations and you find Jesus in those difficult situations, when you wake up in the morning, are your situations gone? No. Nothing changes but everything changes. The transformation begins inside of you. The transformation begins within you. The work that Jesus begins to do is within. He he begins to change our heart. He begins to change our mind. He begins to change our morals. He begins to uh, change our character. He He begins to unlock within us giftings that he placed within us to be used for his glory. Or rather, if giftings and abilities that you already have are already unlocked and you're able to uh, uh, use those giftings and abilities, he is then able to redirect them for his glory. And so I'm gonna talk to you about a man named Saul right now for a moment. My first point in today's message in focus is see Jesus clearly. See God clearly. Saul was was a man who was uh, zealous about what he believed. He was educated, he was a Pharisee, and was a force to be reckoned with in his day and age. When a group of people called Christians began to preach and teach about this gospel, about Jesus claiming that he was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for for over seven centuries, he among the other religious leaders knew that something had to happen. The problem with Saul at this point in time was that Saul did not see Jesus for who he was. Saul's eyes were not open to the revelation of Jesus as Messiah, of Jesus as Savior, of Jesus as the, uh, the, as the promise fulfilled. And so Saul is now persecuting the church. And again, you have to think about it. In Saul's mind, he was a religious leader, was very educated, knew about how to follow the law, and that is what the religious leaders taught the people. You follow the law, uh, and that is how you live in obedience to God. That is how you please God. And when Jesus came, Jesus changed everything. A new covenant by his blood, through fa- a righteousness, through faith in Jesus. And in his mind, Jesus was a heretic who was preaching heresy and, and was leading good, devout Jewish men and women astray. Again, because the revelation of Jesus had not been fully revealed to him, or rather in his heart, his eyes were still very much blind. 
So, again, in the mind of Saul, these Christians were preaching and teaching heresy that caused good, devout Jews to go astray. This is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9. Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest men and women of the way, where on the road he had an encounter with Jesus. How many of you in this room today are thankful for your encounter with Jesus? Amen? I'm very thankful for my encounter with Jesus. And so, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, it'll be on the screen if you want to read along, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Here's what it says. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Again, that's a detail that we don't often focus on in this encounter. Even the men that were traveling with Saul heard the voice of Jesus but didn't see him. However, this account, or rather this encounter was specified for Saul. We don't really know what happened uh, in the lives of the men that were with Saul. Maybe they, maybe they stayed with Saul and maybe they gave their hearts to Jesus. We don't know. But I know that God had a divine appointment to meet Saul. Amen? God had a divine appointment to meet Saul. Verse 8. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him uh, and led him by hand to, into Damascus where he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. The Bible goes on to tell us that there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and God gives him the instructions as to where he needed to go and what he needed to do for Saul to be healed. God was telling Ananias, Ananias, I need you to go into this house at this time right now because there is a man whom you are going to meet there named Saul, and he is my chosen instrument to bring the message of Jesus, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Ananias was an educated man in terms of he knew who Saul was. Saul was this extremist Pharisee whom was not just persecuting, but uh, giving the okay and the green light to execute anybody who called on the name of Jesus and uh, preached or taught that the gospel of Jesus. Saul, uh, Saul was there when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 6, and Saul was there and gave the approval for it to happen, and Stephen became the first martyr for the, uh, for the church And so here Saul is, having an encounter with Jesus. He's blind, he's at this place. God speaks to Ananias, tells him, I want you to go to this man, whom, by the way, before today, would kill you if you encountered him, and I want you to go and heal him. How many of you would hesitate? (laughs) I know what I would do. God, no hablo inglés. And then, (laughs) and then, God would speak to me in Spanish and shut that down right there. And you would be left with no choice but to walk in obedience. And so Ananias hesitated at first, but God gave him the reason. He's my chosen instrument to bring my message to the Gentiles. How can you argue with that? The Bible tells us that Ananias got up. He did exactly as the Lord did. He went to Saul and told him that the Lord sent him that he may regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen to what the Bible says in Acts 9, verses 18 and 19. At once... Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. 
Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The Bible also tells us beyond this point that Saul immediately, everyone say immediately, Immediately. began to preach Jesus. Immediately began to preach Jesus. And in this season of Saul's life where he found himself, he was entering discipleship. With, with Ananias and with other believers that, were, that, that knew Ananias and were close to him, Saul began to learn about Jesus because we have to remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded, and surely I will be with you to the very ends of the age. And so this was Saul's, uh, this was Saul's opportunity. He was baptized He's becoming a disciple, and now he's being taught everything that Jesus taught. That's the process of discipleship, and what did he do? As a disciple of Jesus, he immediately began teaching Jesus. He immediately began preaching Jesus. For the first time in his life, Saul was able to see with new eyes. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life was never the same. My prayer for myself my family, my generation, the next generation, and even members of uh, generations that have come before mine who don't know is that spiritual scales would fall from our eyes so that we can see Jesus. Amen? Amen? That we can clearly see Jesus. And sometimes we struggle to see God in seasons of life. Uh, This could be for various reasons, but I believe that a big reason is due to obstacles, challenges, difficult seasons that we may find ourselves navigating. And so the point, uh, point one to see Syracuse change for Jesus, point one in, in seeing Syracuse change for the gospel is our ability to be able to see Jesus, point number two, even in our hard, difficulty, uh, our hard difficulties of life, our hard seasons of life. Hard seasons can cause us to become fearful, become anxious, frozen, sometimes lose focus. Anyone who has ever walked through a difficult season of life or faced a challenge of any kind can attest to the fact that Sometimes life is hard. Amen? How many of you ever walked through a difficulty in your life? People online, I saw that hand. I didn't. But I know you raised your hand. Shout out to Chris Guy who's watching in his uh, patrol car right now. Anyway. When I was in high school, my family navigated hard seasons of life. From losing my uh, childhood home, moving so many times, financial struggles, we were overwhelmed. Uh, the youth know, uh, a lot of the youth know my story. Throughout my uh, childhood, my high school career, four years, my family moved 13 times because of struggles. And so for a good portion of my high school career, I lived out of boxes just because uh, how long are we going to be here? You know, we lost our childhood home and it was just downhill for years after that. How long are we going to be staying here? Oh, we're moving to the other side of town. Oh, we're moving to the other side of town. You know, how long are we going to be here? I'm not uh, unfamiliar with a hard season of life and in hindsight, how many of us know hindsight is 2020? In hindsight, God was with me every step of the way. But in that season of my life, I was very new to the faith. I didn't know how to see God. I didn't even know how to seek him in the midst of what I was walking through. I didn't even know how to be able to see what he was doing in the midst of my hardship. But today, in hindsight, I look it over, I think about it, and I just think, wow, praise God. He was right there every step of the way providing for my family. And I'm able to have the perspective of things could have been so much worse, but God. Things could have been so much worse, but God. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to jump from the book of Acts back to 2 Kings chapter 6. 
And, and while you're turning to 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm going to give you a little bit of context as to this passage that I'm about to talk to you guys about. The king of Aram was waging war against Israel. He discovered that Elisha, a prophet of God was, uh, in Israel, was in a city called Dothan, so he sent his armies to go surround them uh, with the intent of capturing Elisha. And the thing that we have to understand about Elisha's relationship with the king of Aram was Elisha was annoying. Elisha was an annoying fly or gnat in the ear of the king of Aram because any time that the king of Aram thought he was being clever to try and trap Israel's armies and, and have some form of tactical advantage over them, God would speak to Elisha, Elisha would speak to the king, the king would speak to the armies, and they would just redirect. And they could not entrap the armies of Israel. And so the king of Aram thought that he had a spy in his midst, a traitor. Somebody was clearly feeding information, but it was Elisha, whom God communicated with, would communicate to the king, to the armies, and the king of Aram could not do anything against the people of God. And so listen to what the Bible says in 2 Kings, beginning in verse 13. So the king said, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. And when he was told Elisha is in Dothan, he sent horses, chariots, and a massive army there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elijah, oh, master, what are we to do? And I think of, it, I think of this conversation so casual that it's kind of funny in my mind. It's just the way my brain works. Master, what are we to do? And I, I just imagine Elisha coming up to him just calm, cool, collected. And he says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And then the servant thought that Elisha had three heads, four eyes on each head, and was crazy because he could not see who are those that are with us, Elisha. Who are you talking about, Elisha? I don't know if you noticed, Elisha, but it's just you and me and a whole army surrounding us, so are those ours or are those theirs? And then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's servant was scared out of his mind because he was unable to see what God was up to in the midst of their storm. Elisha's servant was unable to see what God was up to in the midst of their difficult season, the difficult moment, their current battle that they found themselves in. But Elisha was in tune with God. Elisha knew God and knew that God would protect them. Elisha was able to see what God was up to and he prayed and the servant's eyes were opened. We don't want to wake up to problems. In Jesus' name? Amen. We don't want to wake up to problems. How many parents are in the room? Sometimes you wake up to a problem, right? It happens. Sometimes you wake up and you have to deal with the problem as a parent. I remember when Judah got his big boy bed almost two years ago. After he got comfortable with it, he proceeded to champion Rachel and I into the phase of parenthood that when he woke up, he would get out of bed, open his door, get out of his room, go into our room, and proceed to wake us up at 5 a.m. or whenever he was up because, Mom, Dad, I'm up. You need to be up. Thus saith Judah. <laughs> One day, Judah thought 
uh, or decided that standing a foot away from my face and just staring at me while I slept was the thing that he was going to do. And I could feel it in my spirit. I was being stared at. I was being stared at. Somebody's watching me. Somebody, it's like a sixth sense that, or a superpower that God gave me the moment I became a dad. It was unlocked within me and just, I slowly opened my eyes and about this far from my face. He was tall enough that his head made it over the bed and his face is just looking at me. I tell you, I almost laid hands on him. He scared the fire out of me and I proceeded to inform him, don't do that. Like, announce your entrance with a mommy-daddy before, like, so, you know, I know you're there. Uh, he also one time decided that uh, early in the morning, this was when Juliet was still sleeping in our room, um, he decided that coming into our room, it's still dark outside, and standing at the foot of our bed was the thing that he was going to do. So he got up on our bed and stood at the foot of our bed. I'm, I'm not even lying, I swear, I swear to God, I wish I, 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 wish I was lying right now. And he said, he just, at the foot of our bed, 5 a.m., it's pitch black, I'm sleeping, Juliet's sleeping, Rachel's sleeping, Judah goes, boop! <laughs> Wakes us all up, terrified, me and Rachel, like, what just happened? And it was just Judah being Judah. Juliet's crying, everybody's up, and it was a beautiful day, it was a great day. You don't want to wake up to problems. And Elisha and his servant woke up to a problem. Elisha's servant was scared out of his mind to the problem that he woke up to because he was unable to see what God was doing in their very midst. He looked at the problem and was overcome with fear and worry. Again, Elisha, in tune with the Lord, was able to see the reality of the situation through a different lens because he knew Jesus, because he knew God. What you focus on, I really want you to hear this right now. What you focus on will be the bigger thing in your mind. What you're giving the most attention to will be the biggest thing in your mind. And so if you're walking through a difficult season of life and it seems impossible, it seems big, it seems like it's a mountain that cannot be moved, I need you to stop looking at the mountain and start reading your Bible. I need you to turn your attention and focus on my first point, your ability to be able to see God clearly. Your ability to be able to see Jesus clearly. Because as you do that, you'll learn that I'll be able to see what God is up to in my midst. And sometimes you never know, God might have your house surrounded with chariots of fire ready to protect you, ready to provide for you, ready to intervene and intercede on your behalf. What you focus on will be bigger in your mind. So when the problem seems so grand that we find ourselves spiraling, uh, it could very well be that our focus needs to be redirected on God and our ability to be able to see. And sometimes we just need a, pr a practical prayer, Lord, open my eyes. Let me see what you're up to so that I can just continue giving you the glory. Second Chronicles 20 verse 12 is a life verse for me. And it speaks to this, uh, it speaks to this uh, very clearly. It, it, again, this is a point in history where Israel was uh, at a place of war with their enemies. And it wasn't just a normal war of one nation versus another nation. Uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles uh, that at this point in Israel's uh, history of conflict, three of their enemies gathered together to be one army to come against the people of God. Talk about overwhelming. And the king did not know what to do. 
And so what he did was he called all of the people in all Israel to come together, to begin praying, to begin fasting, and to begin crying out to God, and everybody, the Bible says, did just that, an entire nation brought to their knees in prayer. Listen to the king's prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I know that I'm in a room full of people just like me who have found themselves saying, God, I don't know what to do right now. I'm facing this kind of situation and I don't really know what I'm doing. I remember the first time I had to pay my taxes, do my taxes, and I was terrified because I did not know what I was doing. And the idea that I could get in trouble with the American government was terrifying to me. When you don't know what to do, keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you got a doctor's report. Maybe you got some news that you didn't want to hear. Maybe uh, you know that you're heading into just the craziest week of your life or a crazy season or whatever it might be. When you find yourself, and you will find yourself, I promise you, when you find yourself at a loss and saying, God, I don't know what to do, just like the king prayed, Jesus, my eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. How many of us know that God knows what he's doing? Going into my third point. The first one, we need to see Jesus clearly if we want to see Syracuse changed uh, in, in Jesus' name. Even in, second point, our hard seasons. And as we begin to be able to see Jesus clearly, we need to begin to see the world as God does. Amen? We need to begin to see the world as God does. If I could have the worship team come up. Going back to Paul, when Paul's eyes were opened after being blind, he not only saw Jesus clearly, he saw the world with a new lens. He began to see the world how God did and his burden uh, to see the lost come to know Jesus both as Lord and Savior is evident throughout the entire New Testament. But we really, we really begin to hear it and see it in Romans chapter 9. If you could turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Listen to Paul's heart. His ability to be able to see the world as God does. Verse 1 I speak truth, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came Christ, who is God over all, praised forever, amen. That is the heart of Saul. That is a man after God's own heart. That is a man whose heart breaks because there are people uh, from his generation, brothers and sisters, whom rejected Jesus. And that ate him up. The man who once persecuted people for preaching the name of Jesus now is mourning the fact that people rejected Jesus because he now knew that death apart from Christ is to be apart from God forever. 
That was the burden he carried. As he drew nearer and nearer to God, that was the burden he carried. And that is why he considered being a martyr for Christ an honor. He considered it not something that he was actively pursuing, but to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord, that's a reward. I don't know about you, that's not a punishment. That's a reward. In this passage, Paul is expressing his sorrow due to the Israelites rejecting Jesus and his desire was for them to see Jesus as he now did as he, uh, for who he really was and still is today. His heart was for uh, all to see Jesus this way, so he zealously preached the message of Jesus as often as he possibly could and was a force for Jesus until the day of his martyrdom. If we want to see Syracuse chains for Jesus, we have to see this world as he does, to have a burden within us to see uh, those around us who don't know come to a point of decision and salvation in Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, how then can they call on him whom they have not believed in and how can they believe without hearing about him and how can they hear without a preacher and how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I believe God has a plan for each and every person in this room, amen? I believe that God has a plan for each and every person that is watching online. How do I know? I I also believe that God has a plan for every person who has ever walked the face of the earth. Why? Because he created them. How do I know that God has a plan? I'm going to end with one more story. A man who we will call M for the time being was drafted into the United States Army in the 60s during the Vietnam War era. M served his first term without having to see any combat. Encouraged to re-enlist for another tour due to the great benefits and uh, benefits and by uh, a superior and the chances of seeing combat being slim, he did just that with a few of his friends. They re-enlisted. Things in Vietnam got hot as the conflict grew worse and worse and against what was said before re-enlisting, he was headed to Nam. After being there for quite some time and engaging in multiple confrontations and seeing what he described to be hell on earth, He was eventually met with a moral decision that changed his life forever. Before him was a young Vietnamese boy with a rifle in his hand. Faced with the decision, he decided not to take the young boy's life. As soon as he moved past the kid, obviously scared about what his home was going through, where he found himself in the situation, the kid decided to pull the trigger and shoot M, hitting him in his side, back, and even grazed his head. M laid in the battlefield, dying, but miraculously alive and barely holding on to life. As the U.S. Army came to retrieve the bodies of those who paid the ultimate price for freedoms in this country and rescued anyone who was wounded but still alive, M was found and he was rescued. Identified as a U.S. soldier for his uniform, but unidentifiable because his dog tags were missing and his patch was ripped off of his chest. Maybe taken or lost in the heat of combat, we don't know. Multiple surgeries, being in a coma for an extended time, he did what seemed to be impossible. He woke up. He woke up experiencing amnesia, not knowing who he was. 
his family at that point was informed that he was MIA and eventually were encouraged to do what they needed to do to be able to reconcile and move on with their lives. And so his family buried a coffin with some of his possessions and memories as a form of closure to be able to move on. Then one day in the same hospital and rehab center he was in, somebody he served alongside saw him. And at this point in time, memories were slowly coming back as his brain was being healed. And this, this, this person said, I know exactly who that is and let the United States Army know. And the Army got in contact with his mother to, uh, to, to confirm, is this your son? We think we have him, is this your son? And surely enough, it was. How do I know that God has a plan for every person in this room? I told myself I wasn't gonna cry. Because that man's name is Manuel Anthony Vargas. That's my dad. God had a plan for him. God had a plan for me. God had a plan for Judah, Juliet, and all my kids. God had a plan. God wasn't able to see what my dad didn't at that time. His kids, his grandkids, a legacy. Here I am today. God had a plan. How do I know that God has a plan? Because every day I wake up and I look in the mirror, God had a plan. It's a reminder of God had a plan. I know my dad's story and I know that God has a plan. Be encouraged. Be willing. Allow the Lord to open your eyes and for you to be able to see him for the very first time even for some who are in this room. And once Jesus is sitting on the throne of your heart, press in. Seek him. Worship him, study the word, grow in your relationship with him, and go. This is a part that we miss sometimes. Go and tell somebody about him. I end with this. Bill Kirk, our newly retired assistant superintendent of the Assemblies of God here in New York for the last 18 years, is quoted saying, the only thing that will matter 100 years from now is who is in heaven and who is not. And if it matters then, it better matter now.